Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sophie Scott. And I'm James Gill. Our mission is to make wellness accessible to everyone. We'll be chatting with our favourite people. Sharing uplifting news stories. And delivering tips and tricks. To bring balance to your lives. Hello, welcome to the Balance Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. David Hamilton. Uh, it's a... It was a live episode recorded a few weeks ago at the Life Lessons Festival, interview done by our very own editor, Sophie Scott. So I've been a fan of uh, Dr. David for quite a while, listened to some of his books on Audible. I'll read some of the titles out so you get a gist of, of uh, the great man, How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body. You might, yeah, you've, probably, you've probably read some of these yourself. Uh, I Heart Me, The Science of Self-Love, Why Kindness is Good for You, The Contagious Power of Thinking. Uh, he's written many more books and part of his success is due to the fact that he is giving a scientific explanation as to why kindness and connecting with people and a sense of community, why it's good for you. We know it feels good when we do something right, but he explains why. Um, he goes into the, the chemistry behind it. So being kind, yeah, it's good for us, but it's also good for the, the wider world. So this is uh, a really lovely chat and I hope you think it's a, a timely chat. Obviously, it was recorded a few weeks ago. And I know that on behalf of Balance, I know I said this on Monday, but that was before uh, Boris's Monday missive, which was probably about around 5 p.m. Uh, I guess on a personal level, I went from, I will hold my hands up, I went from being fairly blasé about it all. Not blasé, but maybe typically British, you know, a bit keep calm and carry on. I think it was only after Boris's 5 p.m. press conference on the Monday where it all started to hit home that little bit more. And it did feel like the commute home Monday evening was a little more solemn than usual. I don't mean to put a dampener on this. I'm just trying to, you know, we are all in this together, aren't we? And we're all, we're all pals. We're all very grateful to all of you that, uh, that download the Balance podcast. Uh, if this is the first time you've ever downloaded it, I will, you know what, I'll pick out some of my, favorites at random lee mac i love that episode that that will make you smile the ricky gervais one will make you smile if, if you know if you want uh your spirits lifting there's some great well-being ones dr tara swart if you've read the book the source i mean there's many many more crikey i think we're in the we're in the 90s now um so lots of uh, episodes in the back catalog but anyway this this was a, a live episode done at life lessons festival a few weeks ago and it obviously, uh, it goes without saying that this was recorded before everything that is uh, dominating the news around the world. And this is our, our editor, Sophie Scott, with the uh, the equally wonderful Dr. David Hamilton. If you want to find out more about David Hamilton, he is at drdavidhamilton.com. Um, and I can personally uh, recommend his books. He's a, a beautiful writer and, and his great skill something that Paul McKenna said recently on a, another episode of the Balance Podcast. His great skill is turning incredibly complex subject matter and making it feel incredibly simple. And that is easier said than done. So uh, anyway, once again, Sophie Scott, our editor and founder, in conversation with Dr. David Hamilton.
welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen, to the conservatory here at Life Lessons, brought to you by Malta Tourism Authority. There are, it's a very popular one, this is our most popular session today. We're very excited by it. Please feel free to come and join us at the front if you're happy to sit on cushions. There's more space down here. Um, you, don't, you can stand at the back, but you don't have to. Come in, come in and relax. So, Dr. David Hamilton worked in the pharmaceutical industry before turning his hand to write books on the power of the mind and the body. In conversation today with Sophie Scott, the founder and editor-in-chief of London-based Balance magazine, Dr. David is here to discuss the health benefits of kindness and compassion. Ladies and gentlemen, here to record sorry, a live podcast for Balance, please give a warm welcome to Sophie Scott and Dr. David Hamilton. Um, it's so great to see such a big turnout and I feel like the vibration of this podcast is already pretty mm. high so I'm, I'm very excited. David, can I call you David? Oh, of course, yeah. Not yeah. doctor. Yeah, no, David, yeah. Okay. I'm low maintenance. Okay. <laughs> that makes yeah. one of us, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for, for joining us today. You're welcome. Um, we're, we're really, really thrilled to have you here. And uh, as the introduction just attested to, you've written 10 books um, on kindness and on how uh, your mind can heal your body. But I wondered if you could take us back to the origins of your own story, because I don't imagine that anyone, yeah. when they're at school, kind of says, I want to be a kindness advocate. Mm. Well, actually, you know, writing books was the... L if someone had said to me when I was at school that you'd be a writer... I, no way I would believe them. I mean, I, I was all about mathematics and science. I hated English. I hated, you know, I failed my English at school, funnily enough, on my first attempt. It's completely ironic that I became a writer. But what, what happened really, what turned everything around? Uh, on my, one of my, my first couple of weeks at high school, when I was 11 years old, my mum was struggling with postnatal depression. And this was in the mid-70s. Uh, the late 70s, my, my, my youngest sister, after my youngest sister was born, my mum had postnatal depression. It wasn't fully understood in the 70s. And so the advice my mum was given at the time was to give yourself a shake. Now, asking a, a woman with postnatal depression to give herself a shake is like the opposite of what you, you actually need to be doing. And so my mum developed, she went into even worse depression, anxiety, panic attacks, but also low self-esteem, feeling like, I'm just a weak person, I'm a poor mother, and that's my mum started to believe that. And I was growing up as a child feeling this compassion for my mum, and I didn't know what was actually wrong, so I was just a kid, really. And one of the first weeks at my high school, and this might sound really corny, right, but this actually happened. A book, I was in the library, with the teacher was taking us to the library. A book fell off the shelf, The Magic Power of Your Mind, by Walter Germain. And I immediately had this intuition. I bet that can help my mum. So I just took it, put it in my bag. I didn't know you're supposed to join a library. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and you used to get a wee yellow card and they stamp it with the date. I didn't know that. I just took the book and my mum still got it. Shh. <laughs> but, but, you know, it didn't cure depression in a day. But what it did do is it gave her tools and strategies like meditation, like affirmations that could help her to navigate a course through some of the really difficult times. So as I was growing up as a teenager, I would often hear my mum talking about the power of the mind and doing affirmations like mind over matter. It's all, it's all in the mind. I can do it. And all these positive things. And we would talk about the power of the mind. So wind the clock forward. And I've just finished my PhD in organic chemistry, learning how to build drugs. So I, I became a, a scientist in one of the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies, working in cardiovascular and cancer medicine, really building drugs by sticking atoms together, like Lego blocks. And what fascinated me more than when we did the drug trials and you prove that a drug works, you give 100 people a drug, 100 the placebo, and let's say 75 improve on the drug, good drug. What we'd often get is 40, 50, 60, 70, 74, 75, improving on the placebo because they thought they were getting the drug. Mm. And I thought that was amazing. And while my colleagues were so focused on further developing the drug, because I'd spent so much hours talking with my mum about the power of the mind, that's all that was registering in my mind was how many people 
had improved on the placebo, and I wanted to understand why thinking and feeling and believing something would have an actual physical effect. And none of my colleagues understood it. They, just, they used to always just say, oh, it's just the placebo effect. It was this sweeping movement with the right hand, it's just the placebo. Uh, and it's just because no one understood it, so I decided to find out, and that's what led to what I do now, writing books and speaking. So what took you then from working in the pharmaceutical industry to writing books. Can you, can you just tell us a little yeah, bit more about I, that time? So a, a couple of things. I, I found some research that, that, under, that, that showed why, what happens when you believe something. For example, it was actually done in dentistry for this particular study. But what happens when a person, let's say a person has pain, suffering pain, and they're given a placebo, so a sugar pill, now, you'll find that depending on how you do it, 70% of people, 70% of the time, pain will diminish or disappear altogether on a placebo if you use the right language, for example. Uh, and and what, they'd met, what they'd found is it's not just all in your mind. Believing that this little white tablet that you think is a drug, but it's actually a sugar pill, the act of believing in that and how that makes you feel, it fiddles around with your brain chemistry. And your brain actually makes its own version of morphine. You know, so morphine is an opiate. So in the brain, you have natural versions, and they're called endogenous opiates. And endogenous means they're endogenous to the body. They, they're, they're your own. So when you believe this little white tablet is a painkiller, you don't know that it's a sugar pill. Believing that and what you then feel and expect causes your brain to produce natural morphine, endogenous opiates, and that is what reduces the pain. It's not just all in the mind. Your belief has actually caused a chemical change in the brain, which has then released, relieved the pain. So that realizing now there was a scientific basis for belief. You believe something, and your belief changes your brain chemistry and therefore impacts your body chemistry. Then it's not just all in the mind. Something physical happens because you believe. And that was a, that was a trigger moment for me. I have the science, I have to learn more. And when I, I started researching on my own, spent hours in the, the library, or in my spare time, in the, the, the company library, you have access to every, every medical journal in the world. And I started building up a, a whole story of how the mind-body connection works, including uh, the experience of compassion and kindness. Mm and how that has a measurable effect in the body. So I had enough information. I thought, I just want to go and share this with people and help people to understand that one of the best things you could ever do, for example, for your health, is learn to think kind thoughts about people. Sounds really corny, but it's actually one of the best things you could do for your health because it's the opposite of stress. And, and having that kind of information was, was really enough for me to say, I don't want to make drugs anymore. I, I, I totally... You know, I was a scientist. I used to build them. I'm not dishing them. All I'm suggesting is there are things that you can do as well mm. that has a wonderfully natural effect on the body. And I'd, I'd like to come on um, in a moment and ask you more about the benefits, the chemical benefits of kindness. But firstly, just touching on this idea of belief, because it sounds really simple. If you believe it, your body will respond and it will happen. But it's the belief that people struggle with. It's yeah. the belief that we all struggle with. So how do you get there? You know, what if you just don't believe? Can you force yourself to believe? Can you, is it that idea of kind of feeling the fear and doing it anyway? How can you coach yourself? Yeah, so, so I, I do two things. First of all, uh, I explain and I educate on how it works, why it works. Because the moment you understand that, you're thinking and believing and feeling have measurable physical effects. Once you understand that, an amazing thing happens. You start to believe in yourself and you start to believe and understand that where I direct my mind has an effect. So that's the first thing. And the second thing I do is teach some simple tools and strategies. Like, for example, visualization. And I share the science. If you visualize something, your brain in some ways interprets what you're imagining as if it's really happening. And that causes physical change in the brain and physical change in the body. So why... So when you, when you understand a little bit of the science, that generates the belief, and therefore you're more likely to use the techniques. And so what happens is you get around the blind faith thing, mm -hmm. that someone just tells you something, you believe it, and now you become, you're doing it for yourself. You understand why it works, how it works, and now here's a technique you can put into practice. 
So that's how I get around not knowing how to believe, because if you understand the science, then you start to believe, and now you have the technique kind of thing. Is there any really short, and I'm putting you on the spot here, is there any really short visualization technique that you might be able to talk us through now? Yeah, well, actually, the, the most, there's a really good uh, technique for impacting the immune system. And that's particularly important, I guess, now everyone's talking about the coronavirus. A lot of scientific studies have shown that the immune system is actually responsive not only to emotional state, but direction of your mind. Years ago, scientists did a study. I talked a wee bit about a hormone, about an antibody this morning, and Dr. Rangan talked about it as well, called SIGA. It's a little antibody in your saliva. It makes a massive, it's a massive part of, important part of your immune system. Scientists found that if you could visualize multiplying these antibodies, just multiplying them, as if they're a little given birth to, to multiple copies, they found by daily practice of just five or ten minutes a day that they could quite substantially elevate the number, the actual count of these antibodies. Simply five minutes a day of a man. So SIG looks like a, a, a Y, a double Y. So you've got a Y like that and another one underneath. So like a Y shape here and then another Y shape underneath. It's a double Y shape. Good picture to have. Just imagine multiplying the copies of it. And, it, and they found in a couple of studies that they could seriously ramp up the, the number, the actual physical number of these antibodies. Isn't that amazing? I Just mean, by visualizing. Incredible. Yeah. Really. And, and when it comes to kindness, that's also chemical, right? Yeah. Could you talk us through some of the health benefits of kindness? Yeah. So, so kind, kindness has physical health benefits. And the reason it does that. It's because of how it makes you feel. And this is a really important part of the mind-body connection. See, when you feel stressed, it's the feeling of stress that generates the physical effects of stress, like stress hormones, for example. We all, we've all heard of adrenaline and cortisol. They don't just magically appear in your body when you're in a stressful situation. They appear in your brain and in your body because of how you feel regarding this stressful situation, your interpretation of it. Give you an example. Let's say two of you are running late for, let's say, a, a big special festival called Life Lessons, <laughs> and you're, you're both on the tube, and you're looking at your watch, you think, I'm never going to make it. I'm, I, oh, I hate being late. Oh, I'm going to miss that talk. And oh, if I come in late, I don't like being late because you miss a bit. And if I miss a bit, I'll, I won't understand the rest. People always see you coming in late. Oh, it's so embarrassing. And you start to feel really stressed. And because of how you feel, you're feeling stressed, you're flooding your brain and your body with stress hormones, adrenaline and cortisol. But let's say your friend who's traveling with you sits back in the chair and says, hey, take a chill pill. Don't worry about it. There's nothing you can do. You can't really speed the tube up. But if you're late, you're late. You know, it's not the end of the world. And they have a different interpretation. So they're not feeling stressed. Now, if we were to do a little chemical analysis, because you feel stressed, you've got loads of adrenaline and cortisol, stress hormones. But because your friend is not feeling stressed, she has very little stress hormones. So is the event of being late, does that have anything to do with the amount of stress hormones in the brain and body? And the answer is no. It's because of how you feel. So this is how kindness works. When you do an act of kindness, it's how it makes you feel that leads to the benefits of kindness. So when you help someone, you must have you ever noticed that you feel, sometimes it feels satisfying, sometimes you feel proud of yourself, other times you feel a sense of, of warmth. You've made an interaction, eye contact, and it just feels kind of nice. Some people even have a, a physical sensation in the chest. Now what's happening there? Because of that feeling, you actually produce kindness hormones. And I call them kindness hormones to distinguish from stress hormones, because stress hormones get produced because of how you feel. So when you be kind because of how that makes you feel, you produce kindness hormones. The principal one is oxytocin, which is involved in reproduction and breastfeeding, but it's also a very important cardiovascular hormone. It plays a very massive role in maintaining the health of your cardiovascular system. One of the things it actually does, you be kind and it makes you feel nice, you turn it on a little tap in your brain and also in your heart area and different regions also. And it swims through your arteries. And then what it does is it parks on the lining of your arteries in a very similar way to 
you know, if you go into a big car park nowadays, you might find different shapes and sizes of parking bays that are receptive to vehicles of different shapes and sizes. So you have a big car parking bay and motorway services for like, buses, then some for, for uh, SUVs and all that. Yeah, yeah, mind blank there. And then other ones for cars, and then dinky wee ones for motorcycles. So you have different shapes and sizes of parking bays that are receptive to vehicles of different shapes and sizes. So inside the body, and we're talking here on the, about the arteries, you also have vehicles and parking bays. But scientists don't call them vehicles and parking bays because it doesn't sound very scientific. They call them hormones and receptors. But whenever you hear the term hormone and receptor, what you're really hearing is vehicle and parking bay. And that's what happens. So, so you turn on a little tap and out comes the kindness hormone and it parks. It has all of it, most of its parking bays exist in your cardiovascular system. So it parks, and the moment that it parks, it causes a little funny effect that releases the tension in the walls of the arteries, and the arteries go like that, and they expand. Make that noise as well, actually. No, But when that happens, your heart suddenly thinks, you know what? It's a bit wider here. I don't have to push quite as hard to get the, to get the blood through. So your heart says, you know what? All these, oxy, all these kindness hormones are parked. They're having a rest. So am I. So the heart eases off some of its pressure, sits back. And what you get is a reduction in blood pressure. So for that reason, being kind is cardioprotective. It protects your cardiovascular system because it generates the kindness hormone, which protects the cardiovascular system. So any way of producing that, the kindness hormone is cardioprotective. So being kind, showing empathy or compassion, even having a, nice, a warm interaction, hugging someone, anything like that, that generates that sense of warmth, produces the kindness hormone, but it has this lovely blood pressure lowering effect. It also sweeps the crap out of the arteries. What I mean, happens if you're kind, you do an act of kindness and you don't mean it? Aha, uh-huh. <laughs> that's a great question. Now, I call this nature's catch-22. You cannot get any benefits from kindness unless you mean it. You have to mean it. And you might understand why that is, because the benefits come because of the production of the kindness hormone, which get produced because of how it makes you feel. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mean it, you won't feel that sense of genuine warmth and connection or affection. So, in the, so if you don't mean it, you'll never feel it. So you have to mean it to feel it. And you have to feel it to generate the physical effects. So if, you, so if you say, oh, this is really good from the heart, I'm just going to do a couple of these wee things to help people, but I don't really mean it, I'm just doing it for myself. And it won't produce any effects. It's almost like nature has wired into us and it, something so important that you have to be kind, but you have to do it because it's the right thing to do. But is there a difference between kindness and common courtesy and being decent and considerate? Because I think there can be a bit of a blurred line yeah, there. Does I, this I think they're, I think they're yeah. very similar, actually. Yeah. I think there is a, a big overlap, a huge overlap. Because yeah. I think common decency, just being a, a, gen, a genuinely decent person, that generates the kindness hormone if it leads to a little bit of connection between people, which it kind of does. I mean, you say, you know, when I go into a shop and when I'm, I've just bought something from the shop, I always say have a nice day. And I look the person right in the eyes and I say, have a nice day. And that's just common decency. But what I'm doing, I'm making eye contact. Mm. And in that tiny little one or two or three seconds, there's a little squirt of the kindness hormone in me, but also in them. Because of that tiny little moment of connection that occurs. Because you're wired, you're, you're genetically wired to produce the kindness hormone. When you be decent, when you enter, when you connect with a person or an animal, you're genetically wired. In fact, the, 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 the wiring, the, the, the gene for the kindness hormone is one of the oldest in the human genome. It's approximately 500 million years old and four and a half days. No, not four and a half days. But it's <laughs> about 500 million years old. It, it, that tells you that it's, it's called it's conserved. It means it's so important that it's lasted all the way through evolutionary history. It's still here today because it's so important. So nature is rewarding us for being decent, for helping each other out. Nature is saying, yes, more of this, please. And to force you to do more of it, I'll give you a reward. And the reward is a nice little boost to your heart, a boost to your anti-aging properties and all these other kind of things. Have you always been kind? Probably, people would probably say no. I think what happened 
Uh, to, I, I think when I started researching, I've always been kind of decent. My mum is one of the kindest people I've ever met in my life. And so I grew up watching my mum being a really nice person. Yeah. So my mum's been my huge inspiration. Whether I've always followed my mum's example, probably no. Or maybe not conscious. I think I became conscious of it when I started to formally research kindness and, and what it does. And then I had an acceleration uh, that happened. I haven't shared this story publicly very often, but my dog, Oscar, had osteosarcoma, bone cancer. And he was, uh, we'd been just told that he was dying and there was pretty much nothing we could do. We tried everything really to save his life. And, uh, and I remember when he had bonded so much, what he actually did through that loving and caring for this dog, giving everything to save his life, it burst me right open in a way that I hadn't maybe opened my heart as much as that in my life. And it literally, I can only describe it as it burst me right open. The care for him, the, the caught every day, the entire focus was how to make, how to relieve his pain, how to make him happy, how to seek it, save his life. When he passed away, that bursting me open it, it, it has left me something that's never left to this day is a gently effervescent, uh, you could describe it as a, a gently bubbling, simmering background sense of affection for pretty much everyone that I see. Even right now, look at you, and, and I feel this little background of warmth and connection and affection with people. And it might have always been there, I just didn't notice it. But what Oscar did through that period is he he burst me open so much that that love that I had had to find somewhere to settle on. Uh, and so I think it's almost like I've opened something and it's just not closed. And so the, the intensity varies absolutely. We're all human and sometimes it's really strong, but other times it's, it's quite weak. But I think that was a life-changing thing for me because my awareness of kindness leapt up beca only because I could feel it palpable. Mm. literally palpable, the, the sense of, of warmth for people and connection. It was palpable yeah. from that day, and it hasn't really left me in that five years since. It's really beautiful. Thank mm. you for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. You mentioned your mum and how she's just a really decent person. How much of this is kind of learnt behaviour? How much of this is passed down? Yeah. Um, or, or can we learn it? You know, there's some people who have not been so fortunate, perhaps haven't yeah. come from, you know, such loving families. You know, are they screwed in some way? Is, it, can, you, can you cultivate yeah. kindness? Yeah, there's a bit of both, actually. Everyone is genetically wired to be kind. Without exception, there is no one on this planet that does not have genes for the kindness hormone, because you wouldn't be here. You could, your cardiovascular system could not survive without it. Your, your immune system could not... You couldn't construct heart muscle cells, neurons, liver cells, kidney cells, without the kindness hormone. So there's no one alive that does not have the process. What we do have is variations in the degree of how the natural system kicks in. Yeah. You think of it like every gene, think of it like a colour. And every, every gene has different shades. Think of it as, I wrote a blog in my website called 50 Shades of Pink, <laughs> round about the time when 50 Shades of Grey was coming out. And I was explaining how genes have different a tonal range. So you might have one range from baby pink right up to pink almost in red. And that tonal range is variations in the way that the gene, kinda, the strength of how it grips onto things. Uh, and so that, that variation can lead to individual differences in a person's natural tendency to take an opportunity to help someone, to notice it, mm. for example. Like if something happened, let's say someone fell over, then you would find a little bit of variation. If all things, if all things were equal, you would find a little bit of variation between each of us in how quickly you would respond to that. So that's a natural variation. But the predominant thing is learned behavior and teaching. It is such a social thing that we can learn to be more kind. We can teach it. In fact, we know that from studies on the loving kindness meditation find that it causes physical change to the brain in the same way that, you know, we've all done exercise. We've all maybe 
decided to start exercising and maybe started running. And you'll notice your leg muscles tone up. If you've gone to the gym, you start getting toned. If you do yoga, you start getting muscle tone. So we've all seen what happens when you physically exercise. So some, the reason why that's happening in your body is because a similar process is happening in the brain. They don't call it muscle growth in the brain. They call it neuroplasticity. But if you hear the term neuroplasticity, in one way it really means muscle growth but the brain's version of the physical thing. So scientists found if people who'd never tried it before were to practice seeing every day, thinking of people in their lives, may you be happy, may you be well, may you be safe, may you be at peace. And building up the feelings associated with kindness, they found physical, neurological change like muscle growth in the front of the brain, slightly on the left-hand side, and also in a center called the, the insula, called the empathy center of the brain. So what I, the point I'm making here is the brain physically changed in structure because of how you are teaching yourself to feel. So as we practice being, and it is a practice, as we practice being kind more, it becomes easier, just like when you, you go out for a run for the first time and it's, your muscles are agony, but a few weeks, a few months later, it's quite easy. So kindness as a practice becomes easier. And then it doesn't really matter which tonal, what shade you have in the tonal range, within reason. It doesn't really matter that much because most of it is, is what you learn and what you're practicing. So anyone can learn. Yes, you have people have had such difficult trauma, trauma and, and it can make it, more difficult to be kind, particularly in a stressful situation. But not in a stressful situation, it's a little bit easier. But in a stressful situation, it can be more difficult because what comes to the forefront of the conscious mind is the, the, the stress and the anxiety and the fear. But it doesn't mean the natural tendency isn't there. It's mm. always there. Mm. So there are, there'll be some parents in the audience and, you know, I'm not, I'm not a parent, but it seems to me that kids can either be the kindest or the most unkind individuals. Is there anything that you can suggest, perhaps to parents who may be struggling with their, their kid, who mm. is, who, you know, maybe they're demonstrating not such kind yeah. attributes? Oh, well, actually, I, I had a, an amazing chat yes, yesterday. I, I was on uh, Dr. Rongan Chatterjee's mm. podcast. We recorded it yesterday. It's going live quite soon. And, and he told me that he, he created a little game, he calls it a game, with his kids. Uh, and now, I, I, I forget the exact questions, but so you, you should check out, check out Rongan Chatterjee's stuff. I think it's in his latest book. But this little game he has is every night at the dinner table, they have a couple of questions. And I can only remember two of the questions at the moment. The first one was, what have you done today that's kind? Mm. Ha, what have you received today? Or what has someone, what kind thing has someone done for you? I think there's a couple of more questions. But just doing that has literally massively changed the behavior of his children. At first, it was a bit kind of silly, Dad, oh, kindness. But now the kids love it so much that they're actually, what's happening is they're looking for things to, to talk about at dinner. So they're actually becoming more consciously aware of what they can do to be kind and understanding what being kind actually means. I've spoken quite a lot in schools, primary schools for young kids, and I'm loving that the teachers are usually initiating kindness projects mm where they're having a week-long focus on kindness, and the children are learning what kindness is, what it means, what is an act of kindness, and noticing how it makes you feel. And I think what, what Rongan Chatterjee is doing with his kids is every single day. And it's an amazing thing. It's had such a powerful impact. Mm. Thank you. I think, you know, I, I speak from personal experience as well, that actually sometimes it can be really hard to be kind and considerate to those closest to you, actually, because we love them so much. We feel that they should understand us. And if we're in a bad mood, you know, we just kind of can let it out on them. Not because we want to be a horrible person, but, you know, I think it's sometimes easier to be kinder to, you know, someone you're at quite a distance mm. to. Have you got any thoughts on that and suggestions? Yeah, it's partly because of history, isn't it? <laughs> you know, and, and you, you remember... I remember when I was first writing my books and talking about stuff, and I would tell my family members, oh, you should try this visualization, and 
No, it just goes in one year out the other. <laughs> Until they go to a talk and hear someone else saying it, who <laughs> learned it from me, and say, oh, no, but such and such said that I'm, I'm going to try that every day. I told her that or him that. It came to my talk, and I've been telling you that for years. And so what happens is, is we often have a different experience with family members as we do with everyone else. So one, a little study that was done with people that you know was a version of the loving kindness meditation. Mm-hmm. And you, you project it every day, may you be happy, may you be well, may you be safe, may you be at peace, or variations of those words. It doesn't really matter so much. And found that when you project it towards family members, people in relationships, it has a beautiful positive effect on the quality of the relationships because what happens is with the regular practice, you start to cut through the, the, the heaviness or the issues or the history that you have and you start to see the person or you remember things about the person that maybe you've forgotten and it starts to rekindle and reignite some of the things you've missed. Another thing is a gratitude practice where you, you, you do for two or three weeks every day you, you write down as many things as you can, five, five, 10, 20, 50 and many reasons why you appreciate a particular person. It works particularly well for someone you've, got, you've had a bit of an issue and challenges with. But mm-hmm. it, again, it helps you, your mind, to learn to, to settle more in the light than the dark, mm. if you will. And, you know, it is a challenge because the world, I mean, if you only have to look at politics right now, to mm. see that the world, in a way, doesn't particularly celebrate kindness. No. Um, you know, celebrities, that's, that, that, that's not the paradigm that we're, that we're looking through. And um, I was listening to a podcast with Michelle Obama the other day, who I absolutely love. Me too. And she talks about when they go low, you go high, which yes. really hit I me because I just thought that was so amazing. But it's hard, isn't it? Because it is when you feel um, that you need to protect yourself, defend yourself, it's so easy to go into that kind of lower, lower vibrational state and hit back and go low. How do we keep our state of consciousness high and not go there? You know, a simple little trick I found to be amazingly important. Your, your, your state of mind is so amazingly heavily influenced by how you hold and move your body and how you breathe Mm. at any one moment. There is a a two-way relationship between your mind and your body. You probably noticed that what happens to your face when you feel happy? Yeah, you smile. But correct me if I'm wrong, you don't remember to smile, do you? Smiling is a reflex reaction. It happens by itself when you feel happy because it, you could think of it, here's a good, a good model of it, good analogy. You could think of it like a puppet on a string. When you feel happy and the, the happy centers of the brain are activated, they pull on the smile muscles, this one here, the zygomaticus major. It tugs it like that. So, so what happens is your muscles react to how you're feeling in the moment. Similarly, if you feel stressed, you don't remember to go like that and tense. It's a reflex reaction. Again, you could think of it as a puppet on a string that the stress centers of the brain tug on all the muscles that are associated with stress. But it's a two-way street. What you do with your body impacts in the mind. One of, in fact, if it, was, if it was your goal to get stressed, one of the fastest ways to do it is to use your body. So let's say you're saying, wait a minute, you know, I'm done being at peace and calm all the time. God, I'm so bored with it. I'm always chilled out and peaceful. I want to get stressed like all my pals. Damn it, I'm going to do it. Now, the fastest way to do it is actually to get up and move your body in a really fast, intense way and, and breathe really fast, double the speed of, rate of breathing, talk a lot faster, tense your body and move in fast, jerky movements. Your brain hears, I must feel really stressed. So your brain rapidly tilts its biochemistry and generates a feeling of stress. So the, fa- so the loudest voice your brain hears is how you hold and move your body. So turn that the other way around. In a stressful or conflicting situation, the fastest way to actually feel calm is to become consciously aware of your body and move your body, hold and move your body and your breathing in such a way that your brain hears, no matter what is happening right now, I've got this. Mm. So what you do is you slow your rate of speech. Because when you're in a stressful or, con- or conflicting situation, if you could watch a video of yourself, you will notice that n- two things will happen to your speech. You will speak much f- 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Faster and louder. And it's because you're reacting to the situation. So if you reduce the tone of your voice, the other person will as well, but if you reduce the tone of your voice and slow it down, just like you would do, I used to do this with Oscar, my dog, when he was so hyper. I would speak very slowly. Oh, my wee boy. How are you doing? Oh, I love my wee boy. If he's tills wagging really fast, he's so excited. Oh, my wee boy. Because if you go, oh, how are you doing? Oh, and you react to it, he'll get even more excited. So to calm them down, you slow your speech. It works even more efficiently with human beings. Yeah, children. S- children and humans. So you slow your speech and become consciously aware of your breath. And if you do those two things, breathe Slow your speech and then straighten your spine and drop your shoulders. Do those three things. You'll find it will massively impact the situation because a lot of the conflicting, stressful situation is the other person's physiological response to you. Mm. And so if you're reacting the same as them, that will just feed how they're feeling. So if you can become, the key is notice it, become conscious of what's happening and then do the exact opposite of what you actually want to do. So... Breathe, slow your speech, slow the to- reduce the, the, the pitch, the tone of your voice, and speak slowly. And then if you have to move your body, move it slowly in a slower way. And you have a circuit in the brain called the mirror neuron system, MNS. It's a circuit of the brain that mirrors the actions in bodily and facial expressions of another person. And we take so much of our cues from the facial expressions and body language of another person. That's because language is really recent. Language is, what, 15,000-ish year old. For millions of years prior to that, our ancient ancestors communicated through body language and gesture. If you wanted to, ex- to express how you felt, you used your body to express it. And oh, oh, before we had language, when we were in the cavemen era, before we could speak. So that's why the body and brain, the brain reacts so quickly to body language. And that's why we have this mirror circuit in the brain. So slow your breathe- breathing. Take a deep breath. Slow the rate of your speech. Bring it down a little bit, not as loud. And move your body slowly. And more times than not, you'll find that the other person's body language and whole dynamic will begin to change in response to how you're changing. It's like Gandhi said, be the change. You can literally be the change. And it's, it's almost magical to watch the first time you do it. It's like magic and you think, it's just changed my life. It literally, it's like magic when you do it for the first time. We've talked quite a lot about um, giving kindness to others. Uh, but... It also feels like the hardest job is being kind to yourself. Yeah. You know, we give ourselves such a hard time. We're not good enough. We're putting ourselves under constant pressure. And I think especially today, you know, when we are, a lot of us are so focused and goal-oriented, you kind of switch off from the day-to-day. Uh, you stop extracting um, the day-to-day happiness. Yeah. And it all becomes about that mission. And the self-talk can be really, really quite mm. awful and pervasive. 
Do you have any tips? Yeah, actually, one of my favourites, I I call it the inner Buddha exercise. I I wrote a book a few years ago on self-esteem, and I dealt with self-esteem, and I I dealt with self-criticism. It's actually, the book's actually called I Heart Me. My claim to fame is on Amazon, and not on Amazon, on the audiobooks version, I knocked Michelle Obama off number one. Wow. A few months ago, and I've no idea how it happened because my books don't really go to number one. I'm not really that well known, I, I guess, maybe as a writer. But some, I guess someone famous somewhere must have shouted out about that book because for about a couple of days, it was number one on Amazon on, on audiobooks and Michelle Obama was number two. So I took a screenshot. <laughs> That's my, my claim to fame. But one of the exercises I, I, I taught in that book, I call it the inner Buddha, and it's wonderful for silencing the voice of the inner critic. And see, if you really think about it, we have three voices, right? We have the, the voice, when, we, when we're self-critical, oh, I'm such an idiot, why did I do that? Why did I, I wish I had done something, right? You could call that the voice of the critic, the inner critic. Then you have that portion of yourself that feels wounded about what's happened. I feel hurt. Uh, partly at what the inner critic is saying, but also I just feel hurt about me or, or sad about how I acted in a situation. So you have those two voices, the critic and the criticised. Mm. But if you listen, you have a third portion. Mm. I call it the inner Buddha. Some people might call it your higher self, your wisest portion. You might even call it your soul, whatever, you, whatever language you want. And all three portions will have the loudest voice at different times of your life. We have learned to listen to the critic. We're not born listen to the critic. We're born listening to the, the inner Buddha, to the soul, to the higher self. We learn to listen to this voice. And learning is nothing more than just laying down tracks in the brain. So we can unlearn. So this is a wonderful exercise. What you do, the inner Buddha, you take three colored pens or pencils and you say, say let's say the, the, the green one is for the critic, the blue one is for the the wounded or the criticized, and let's say the pink one is the inner Buddha or my soul, my higher self. So you start, you think of a situation where you recently criticized yourself, gave yourself a hard time, give it the first colored pen or pencil and write down everything the critical voice says. It might be directly at you, you're such an idiot, or it might have been, I'm such an idiot, I wish I hadn't done that, I'm such a... And say everything in the language that you use. And then allow the wounded or the criticized portion to respond. This is how I feel. I feel so hurt. Damn it. I'm trying my best in life. Life is, it sucks sometimes. It's really tough. And I'm, you know, and I don't appreciate that tone of voice because I'm just trying to do my, but whatever you want to say. And then let them, let the critic respond again, whatever you want and have a dialogue. And when you feel the time is right, pick up the third pencil or pen, the inner Buddha the higher self, the soul, and let it have its say. You might allow it to address both the critical portions and the wounded portions. I understand why you're being critical, because you see such potential in us. But when you express that in that way, it makes our wounded self feel even worse. And then you address the wounded self, I understand, I have such empathy for you, I love you so much. I understand how hard that must be. I know more than, better than anyone how hard you try in life. And I know it can be tough. I've got your back. I'm always here if you listen to me. And then let all that conversation go and, and let the conversation evolve, bringing in the soul, the inner Buddha, as often as you can. And when that conversation is done, it might take 20 minutes. It might take two hours. You might write two pages. You might write war and peace. It doesn't matter. There's no right or wrong way. Finish the conversation on the words of the inner Buddha, Mm. of the soul. And with a little bit of practice of doing this consistently, you'll find that you'll learn to listen to the inner Buddha voice more because you've just learned to listen to the critic. That's all. It's just learned. And you start to learn that there's another voice here, but here's what it sounds like. And here's, damn it, here's what it feels like as well, and you learn to listen to that voice, then the voice of the critic begins to disappear almost entirely, and you start to hear and feel the dominant voice as the the inner Buddha. Do you ever just wake up on the wrong side of the bed? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I have my my good days, and I have my, my challenging days, you know. 
I think we're, we're all human. You know, I, I have, in the background, I have my, the stuff I, I'm having to deal with as well. And, you know, I, you know, people ask me this often, are you kind all the time? I try to be, but I, damn it, I don't succeed all the time. I have, like anyone, I, I don't think anyone is spared the, re, the challenges and the stuff when shit hits the fan. And how do I deal with it? And, mm. and it's just practice. Mm. It's just, it's like going to the gym. You just have to practice. And there's days when you just, you just don't make a good job of it at all. But you'll find it doesn't, improvement in anything doesn't go in a straight line. Mm. My improvement sort of goes like this. <laughs> and it, life kind of goes like that. But if you notice check in once in a while, you'll notice that yes, it's going up and down, but in an upwards direction, you'll notice that the quality of person you've become one or two years further on is a wee bit better than it was one or two years earlier. You might not have been totally proud of how you got there, but you got there and it's just gently improving. And that's a wee bit of what self-compassion and self-love is, is learning to understand that we're all human. And are you someone that has this kind of ideal um, place that you'd like to, to reach or this ideal, the ideal qualities that you would like to cultivate? Are you quite sort of focused on reaching certain benchmarks or is it just a day-to-day you know, practice? I, I, I don't really have a, I'm, I'm not trying to get to an idealised version of myself mm-hmm. if that's what you mean. I, I'm just tr- you know, it's funny, I just, I just get my head down and do the work you know, and I don't really think of of where I'm trying to get to. It's the same when I, I'm, you know, I'm, when I think of my career as a writer and a speaker, I'm not too focused on how famous I could become or how many books I can sell. It's nice when you trump Michelle Obama, you know, trump, no, no, when you, <laughs> it's nice when you, you, you get to number one and Michelle Obama's number two, uh, because they don't, I don't think they get on, so I was just, uh, so it's nice. But it's not really my focus. My focus is just to try to do what I do. Uh, and and I, think the, I think the side effects take care of themselves, I think. And I, so I don't really have an idealized ver- version I'm trying to get. I think I'd, I'd like to, like anyone, I'm, I'm aware that there is a much better version of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm compassionate enough with myself that I'll get there when I'm there when I'm there and I might not even notice it. Yeah. I'm just going to do the work and, and I'll notice, maybe I'll notice how far I've come. But how important do you think having a sense of purpose is? Because it, it feels to me, um, and you know, I'm interested in everything to do with wellness, but actually you can kind of eat well, do well, you know, exercise well, all these things, but actually if there isn't kind yeah. of a reason to wake up in the morning, um, there can be a sort of... A, a, a melancholia of Got, sorts yeah. Yeah. And, and it feels that the people that are more fulfilled in some capacity or yeah. have a clearer direction are often happier Absolutely. and find it easier to be kind. Completely agree. So how do you think that all fits into yeah, the jigsaw? Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I get what you were asking me now. Yeah, so so I, I one of my I guess senses of purpose is to try to spread more kindness in the world. Not necessarily by being, well, yes, by doing my own little bit where I can, but I, I just occupy a tiny wee corner of the world, I suppose, but by writing about it and speaking about it and having platforms like this mm-hmm. where you talk about it and more people learn about what kindness is and how you can make a difference. And I think that's where my work develops a purpose. You know, I could easily, I, I, I post on my Instagram and Facebook every other, pretty much every day, and I could easily post stuff that gets a lot more likes, but I keep posting about kindness. Even though the books don't, kindness books typically don't sell as much as others, I think because most people know that one, I don't need to learn about being kind, I know how to be kind. But I just keep the dialogue going anyway. And so that gives me a a reason for getting up in the morning, is saying, I'm just going to do it anyway, I'm just going to keep talking about kindness, I'm going to talk about the science of it, because if you understand the science, it creates a dialogue. And then people in their family start talking about it, and kids start learning it. And then you find that it ripples out. And, uh, and, and so that, for me, gives me a sense of mm. purpose. And also when I have a focus, like I've got a book to write, mm. that gives me a focus. So I, I focus on that. I, I, maybe I probably could benefit more from focusing on trying to get to somewhere. I, I've probably not... Maybe setting goals for my... That kind of goals for myself is where I need to work on. Mm. 
and maybe I'd probably get further in my career if I did do that. But I haven't really done much of that. It's most I have a, 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 a different type of sense of purpose. That I wouldn't I say you're doing too bad in your career. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just, you know, it's funny. Coming back to what you said a minute ago, despite what you see, in my head, I feel like I'm just winging it most of the time. People see, oh, you've written all these books, you know all this stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. Honest to God, I'm winging it. Oh, most of the time, I've no, most of the time, I have no idea what I'm doing. Really don't. I don't even know, I don't know how to do, you know, build a website or how to launch an online course. I'm learning as I'm going along and half the time I'm winging it. When I wrote my first book, I'd never written a book in my life, nor had I ever read a book on how to write a book. I just literally winged it. And I think, if we're really honest, most of us don't really know exactly what we're doing and what holds us back in life is thinking that we're supposed to have all the answers And I've learned that the greatest gains in confidence and self-esteem are just at the other side of your comfort zone. Yeah. And so I've got into the habit because I have to. I've got no choice. I get into the habit of just kind of winging it. And I'm just going to do it and see what happens. And sometimes the shit hits the fan, doesn't work out, and just going to do it anyway and try again. And so that's kind of what... Despite what you might see as someone who's written a lot of books and speaking at these kind of events... I'm winging it inside most of the time. So do you think that successful people are just more comfortable winging winging it? it? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. There's hardly anyone I know who totally got all the answers, who's totally got it all together. I mean, I've got a lot of author friends, some of them who have sold millions of books, Mm. and they're all struggling with the exact same issues as you and I. All get exactly the same challenges, exactly the same. All that changes is the context, mm. just the context. But everyone, you know, people, I remember people have said to me, uh, oh, I'm, I'm going to meet one of my, my friends, another author, blah. Oh, I'd love, to be, I'd love to be at that conversation, listen to what's getting said. I'll tell you what's getting said. This is the shit I'm going through. <laughs> There's nowhere near the shit that I'm going through. And we're chatting about that and how to deal with your day-to-day. And then we talk a wee bit about your life and bigger things. But most people are just talking about ordinary things because we're all just the same, really. We have perceptions of people. But the perceptions we have are just in our own head. They're just a perception. I remember before I wrote a book, I was terrified about going up in a book signing queue and asking them a book signed. I was, hand was shaking. Could could you sign my book? I'm so nervous. An author, an author. Until you've written a book yourself and you think, I just winged it. I feel such a fraud. Other authors must be much better <laughs> together than me. God, I just, just me. Why are you feeling embarrassed about asking me to sign a book? I'm just David. God's sake. You're, you're fine. You know, we're all, I've learned that we're all just the same. No matter what someone might appear like, mm. they're just winging it the same as you and I. And, and so, social media, especially sort of Instagram these days, um, it's such, it's just a place where you're constantly comparing yourselves. Yeah. Have you got any, um, any words to, and this might be a bit sort of controversial, any words to individuals out there who troll, mm. who find that they go online and they actually say really unkind things? Mm. Um, have you got anything to say to those people? You know, I, I get that sometimes. Surprisingly, not as much, actually, as, as a lot of other. Maybe because I write about kindness a lot. But, but when I get it, I, I never, ever respond to it. Yeah. Ever. Because all it ever has ever done when I have responded is it gets into a never-ending dialogue where the troll has to get the last word. And they will go forever, ever. And I had someone it, copying a, a YouTube video and breaking it down into 30-second segments and taking something right out of context and then posting the, co- the section that, that was completely out of context. And you said this at 4 minutes and 18 seconds on the da-da-da, and I thought, there's no point. Mm. So I, I never, ever, ever engage. If someone gets abusive, I just block, report, block, report, block. It doesn't happen very often. But, uh, but what I'd say to these people is, we're all in this world together. But despite the fact we might be trying to protect ourselves and look after our own corner of the universe, at the end of the day, we're a family. And we're in this together. And when people are trolling, most people I know that, have been, that are unkind to other people are struggling in their own life. 
So what I try to see behind the troll, even when I press block, what I still try to, to see is that wounded person who's just finding a way of venting online and I happen to, or one of my other colleagues, just happens to be the person they can vent because it's anonymous or you can make it anonymous. So before I press block, I, try, I sometimes even say a wee prayer. May you be happy. May you be well. May you be safe. May you be at peace. Block. <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing. But, but, but the, point, the point I'm making is we, we, we can, if we're all together in this world, then maybe we can just learn that it's important to try to be nice to each other, to try best we can. I don't know if that, that's the right answer. I've never trolled online. I've, I've never, I would never put a, an unkind comment any, about anything, anyone, because I understand that everyone's just trying to find their own way, their own platform. Even people, are, people go on social media and you're just trying to find your own voice. You're trying to find a way. And, you, you know, so I, I'll always be encouraging. Yeah. So I don't, I, I don't understand mm. the position, but I understand the temptation when your life, is, when you're having shit time and someone's been really unkind to you I understand what that temptation might be mm. but I think again it comes down to the practice and maybe not all people that troll will do this but if we understand we can learn the practice breathe and just before I say something horrible why do I take three breaths and why don't I just try to speak a sentence at half my usual mm. rate and say before I post this comment might there be another way of looking at the situation? Speaking at half the pace. And when you slow your nervous system down and you start firing off happy centers within, you might find sometimes, you might just want to say something, you might just feel motivated to say something a little bit more supportive and a little bit less critical. And I wonder if it is that shift from a kind of scarcity mindset where I have to put you down because there isn't enough for all of us yeah. to one of abundance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, absolutely. And I, I think there will come a time whether because we've made it that way or maybe by itself, well, we will absolutely rec have to recognize that we're all members of the same family. Mm. And for me, you know, the way the world has to go is for us to understand that we're all in the same family. And so everyone deserves compassion and kindness. Everyone. No matter which nationality, no matter which religion you are, I think we need to pull together, not splinter and break off into the wee bits. We have to come together. Whether that happens naturally or it's literally forced upon us through climate change or something, I don't know. But the only history, evolutionary history has taught us that the only way the human species has ever survived is through cooperation. The human species has, if you look at any kind of evolutionary studies, evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, human species has survived because we learned to work together. Mm. We learned to cooperate. Part of cooperation is patience, empathy, understanding, and the willingness to be kind and so whether that happens because we've made it happen or it's forced upon us, the only chance the human species has in the future is through helping each other and recognizing that we are in this together. There isn't, I don't think there's any other, or there is no other way. I don't see any other way because evolution has taught us there's never been any other way. You look, we, we look at this, we mistakenly think evolution is all about competition for survival. That isn't exactly how it works. It, it is how it works, but in actual fact, it, evolution has imprinted into us that the, big, the best way to survive isn't by competing against each other, it's by cooperating mm. with each other. And that's the message that comes out of this kind of research uh, now. So it's cooperation, not co competition that, that's going to make. The competition is really just the, the way the biology works. Uh, but the, the cooperation is how it all works together. David, thank you so much. That feels like a really perfect time to end this podcast on such an important note. Um, I sincerely hope that, you know, we can all take away uh, the words that you've spoken today and 
try and just give more kindness and, and, and lead from the heart. I think maybe yes, it's time you. for heartfulness rather than mindfulness. Oh, I like that. Possibly. Heartfulness. So um, please, can everyone put a huge round of applause for David? Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you to Sophie. Thank you to Sophie for, for really allowing a, a really lovely interaction here today and for thank being you. a great interviewer and host. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great afternoon, everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, keep that applause going. The lovely Sophie Scott and Dr. David Hamilton. Thank you once again to you both. And do not forget that that was a live recording of the Balance podcast. So look out for that in the near future. It will be something that you can relive and share with your friends. And if you don't know about Balance magazine, then you should, because it's a fascinating read. So if you're London-based, make sure that you look out for it and pick it up. Huge thanks to Dr. David Hamilton and uh, our very own Sophie Scott. Uh, before we go, if you, could, if you could share the episode, always much appreciated. We are at Balance LDN. Uh, before we go, uh, Matt Ford, former guest on the Balance podcast, shared something on Twitter this morning. And he said, we are stronger when we pull together. There is huge potential for this crisis to be an antidote to the divisive populism of the last few years. And uh, thanks to Matt for saying that, because uh, I hope... I have hope in that comment. I really do. Um, anyway, we are, we're, we're back on uh, we're back on Monday. Thankfully, I've got a few episodes in the uh, in the bag already. Uh, so we'll see you then. Uh, thank you again to Sophie and to David, and I hope you're okay. If you want to get in touch, you know, always feel free to reach out. As I say, on the socials at Balance LDN, uh, and I'm at James Gill Comedy. Also, our website Balance.media uh, has. So much amazing content, um, including a few pieces uh, that are factoring in what is happening in the world right now, uh, as well as lots of uh, well-being articles, interviews, uh, and so on. Obviously, lots of old episodes of the Balance Podcast. Anyway, take care and uh, thank you as always. And wherever you are, I hope you're okay. Bye bye. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.